Chapter Fifteen, Section Five of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One, by Karl Marx. Translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Friedrich Engels. Part Four: Production of Relative Surplus Value, Chapter Fifteen: Machinery and Modern Industry, Section Five: The Strife Between Workmen and Machine. The contest between the capitalist and the wage laborer dates back to the very origin of capital. It raged on throughout the whole manufacturing period. Note: See amongst others John Houghton, Husbandry and Trade Improved, London, 1727. The Advantages of the East India Trade, 1720, John Bellers. The Masters and their Workmen are, unhappily, in a perpetual war with each other. The invariable object of the former is to get their work done as cheaply as possible, and they do not fail to employ every artifice to this purpose, whilst the latter are equally attentive to every occasion of distressing their masters into a compliance with higher demands. An inquiry into the causes of the present high price of provisions, pages 61 through 62. Author, the Reverend Nathaniel Forster, quite on the side of the workman. End note. But only since the introduction of machinery has the workman fought against the instrument of labor itself, the material embodiment of capital. He revolts against this particular form of the means of production, as being the material basis of the capitalist mode of production. In the seventeenth century nearly all Europe experienced revolts of the workpeople against the ribbon-loom, a machine for weaving ribbons and trimmings, called in Germany Bandmühle, Schernermühle, and Müllenstühle. These machines were invented in Germany. Abbe Lancelotti, in a work that appeared in Venice in 1636, but which was written in 1579, says as follows, Anthony Muller of Danzig saw about fifty years ago in that town a very ingenious machine, which weaves four to six pieces at once. But the mayor, being apprehensive that this invention might throw a large number of workmen on the streets, caused the inventor to be secretly strangled or drowned. In Leyden this machine was not used till 1629. There the riots of the ribbon-reavers at length compelled the town council to prohibit it, in Hack Erbe, says Boxhorn, Inst. Paul, 1663, referring to the introduction of this machine into Leyden, Ante hos vigente cerciter annos instrumentum quidem invenerent textorium, quo solos plus pani e facilius confessere poterat, quan plures equali tempore, hinc terbe orte e querule textorum, Tandem q usus hujus instrumenti a magistruti prohibitus est. In this town, about twenty years ago, certain people invented an instrument for weaving, with which a single person could weave more cloth, and more easily, than many others in the same length of time. As a result there arose disturbances and complaints from the weavers, until the town council finally prohibited the use of this instrument. After making various decrees more or less prohibitive against this loom in 1632, 1639, etc., 
the States-General of Holland at length permitted it to be used, under certain conditions, by the decree of the 15th December, 1661. It was also prohibited in Cologne in 1676, at the same time that its introduction into England was causing disturbances among the workpeople. By an imperial edict of 19th February, 1685, its use was forbidden throughout all Germany. In Hamburg it was burnt in public by order of the Senate. The Emperor, Charles VI, on 9th February, 1719, renewed the edict of 1685, and not until 1665 was its use openly allowed in the electorate of Saxony. This machine, which shook Europe to its foundations, was in fact the precursor of the mule and the power-loom, and of the industrial revolution of the eighteenth century. It enabled a totally inexperienced boy to set the whole loom with all its shuttles in motion, by simply moving a rod backwards and forwards, and in its improved form produced from forty to fifty pieces at once. About 1630, a wind sawmill, erected near London by a Dutchman, succumbed to the excesses of the populace. Even as late as the beginnings of the eighteenth century, sawmills driven by water overcame the opposition of the people, supported as it was by Parliament, only with great difficulty. No sooner had Everett, in 1758, erected the first wool-shearing machine that was driven by water-power, then it was set on fire by one hundred thousand people who had been thrown out of work. Fifty thousand workpeople, who had previously lived by carding wool, petitioned Parliament against Arkwright's scribbling mills and carding engines. The enormous destruction of machinery that occurred in the English manufacturing districts during the first fifteen years of this century, chiefly caused by the employment of the power-loom, and known as the Luddite movement, gave the anti-Jacobin governments of a Sidmouth, a Castlereagh, and the like, a pretext for the most reactionary and forcible measures. It took both time and experience before the workpeople learnt to distinguish between machinery and its employment by capital, and to direct their attacks, not against the material instruments of production, but against the mode in which they are used. Note. In old-fashioned manufactures the revolts of the workpeople against machinery, even to this day, occasionally assume a savage character, as in the case of the Sheffield file-cutters in 1865. End note. The contests about wages in manufacture presuppose manufacture, and are in no sense directed against its existence. The opposition against the establishment of new manufactures proceeds from the guilds and privileged towns, not from the workpeople. Hence the writers of the manufacturing period treat the division of labor chiefly as a means of virtually supplying a deficiency of laborers, and not as a means of actually displacing those in work. This distinction is self-evident. If it be said that one hundred millions of people would be required in England to spin with the old spinning-wheel the cotton that is now spun with mules by five hundred thousand people, this does not mean that the mules took the place of those millions who never existed. It means only this, that many millions of workpeople would be required to replace the spinning machinery. If, on the other hand, we say that in England the power-loom threw eight hundred thousand weavers on the streets, we do not refer to existing machinery, that would have to be replaced by a definite number of workpeople, but to a number of weavers in existence who were actually replaced or displaced by the looms. During the manufacturing period, 
handicraft labor, altered, though it was, by a division of labor, was yet the basis. The demands of the new colonial markets could not be satisfied, owing to the relatively small number of town operatives handed down from the Middle Ages, and the manufacturers proper opened out new fields of production to the rural population, driven from the land by the dissolution of the feudal system. At that time, therefore, division of labor and cooperation in the workshops were viewed more from the positive aspect that they made the workpeople more productive. Footnote. Sir James Stewart also understands machinery quite in this sense. Je considère donc les machines comme des moyens d'augmenter virtuellement le nombre des gens industriels qu'on n'est pas obligé de nourrir. En quoi l'effort d'un machine diffère-t-il de celui de nouveaux habitants? French Translation, Chapter 19 More naïve is petty, who says it replaces polygamy. The above point of view is, at the most, admissible only for some parts of the United States. On the other hand, machinery can seldom be used with success to abridge the labor of an individual. More time would be lost in its construction than could be saved by its application. It is only really useful when it acts on great masses, when a single machine can assist the work of thousands. It is accordingly in the most populous countries, where there are most idle men, that it is most abundant. It is not called into use by a scarcity of men, but by the facility with which they can be brought to work in masses. Percy Ravenstone, Thoughts on the Funding System and its Effects, London, 1824, page 45. End note. Long before the period of modern industry, cooperation and the concentration of the instruments of labor in the hands of a few gave rise in numerous countries where these methods were applied in agriculture to great, sudden, and forcible revolutions in the modes of production, and consequentially in the conditions of existence and the means of employment of the rural populations. But this contest at first takes place more between the large and the small landed proprietors than between capital and wage labor. On the other hand, when the laborers are displaced by the instruments of labor, by sheep, horses, etc., in this case, force is directly resorted to in the first instance as the prelude to the industrial revolution. The laborers are first driven from the land, and then come the sheep. Land grabbing on a great scale, such as was perpetrated in England, is the first step in creating a field for the establishment of agriculture on a great scale. Footnote. Note in the fourth German edition. This applies to Germany, too where in our country agriculture on a large scale exists, hence particularly in the East, it has become possible only in consequence of the clearing of the estates, Bernlegen, a practice which became widespread in the 16th century and was particularly so since 1648. Friedrich Engels. End note. Hence this subversion of agriculture puts on, at first, more the appearance of a political revolution. The instrument of labor, when it takes the form of a machine, immediately becomes a competitor of the workman himself. Note. Machinery and labor are in constant competition. Ricardo, page 479. End note. The self-expansion of capital by means of machinery is thenceforward directly proportional to the number of workpeople, whose means of livelihood have been destroyed by that machinery. The whole system of capitalist production is based on the fact that the workman sells his labor power as a commodity. Division of labor specializes this labor power 
by reducing it to skill in handling a particular tool. So soon as the handling of this tool becomes the work of a machine, then, with the use value, exchange value, too, of the workman's labor power vanishes. The workman becomes unsaleable, like paper money thrown out of currency by legal enactment. That portion of the working class, thus by machinery rendered superfluous, i.e., no longer immediately necessary for the self-expansion of capital, either goes to the wall in the unequal contest of the old handicrafts and manufacturers with industry, or else floods all the more easily accessible branches of industry, swamps the labor market, and sinks the price of labor power below its value. It is impressed upon the workpeople, as a great consolation, first that their sufferings are only temporary, a temporary inconvenience, secondly that machinery acquires the mastery over the whole of a given field of production, only by degrees, so that the extent and intensity of its destructive effect is diminished. The first consolation neutralizes the second. When machinery seizes on an industry by degrees, it produces chronic misery among the operatives who compete with it. Where the transition is rapid, the effect is acute and felt by great masses. History discloses no tragedy more horrible than the gradual extinction of the English handloom weavers, an extinction that was spread over several decades and finally sealed in 1838. Many of them died of starvation, many with families vegetated for a long time on two and a half shillings a day. Footnote. The competition between hand-weaving and power-weaving in England, before the passing of the Poor Law of 1833, was prolonged by supplementing the wages, which had fallen considerably below the minimum, with parish relief. The Reverend Mr. Turner was, in 1827, rector of Wimslow in Cheshire, a manufacturing district. The questions of the Committee of Immigration, and Mr. Turner's answers, show how the competition of human labor is maintained against machinery. Question. Has not the use of the power-loom superseded the use of the hand-loom? Answer. Undoubtedly, it would have superseded them much more than it has done, if the hand-loom weavers were not enabled to submit to a reduction of wages. Question. But in submitting he has accepted wages which are insufficient to support him, and looks to parochial contribution as the remainder of his support? Answer. Yes, and in fact the competition between the hand-loom and the power-loom is maintained out of the poor rates. Thus degrading pauperism or expatriation is the benefit which the industrious receive from the introduction of machinery, to be reduced from the respectable and in some degree independent mechanic, to the cringing wretch who lives on the debasing bread of charity. This they call a temporary inconvenience. A prize essay on the comparative merits of competition and cooperation, London, 1834, page 29. End note. On the other hand, the English cotton machinery produced an acute effect in India. The Governor-General reported, 1834 to 1835, The misery hardly finds a parallel in the history of commerce. The bones of the cotton weavers are bleaching the plains of India. No doubt, in turning them out of this temporal world, the machinery caused them no more than a temporary inconvenience. For the rest, since machinery is continually seizing upon new fields of production, its temporary effect is really permanent. Hence the character of independence and estrangement, which the capitalist mode of production as a whole gives to the instruments of labor and to the product, as against the workman, is developed by means of machinery into a thorough antagonism. Note. 
the same cause which may increase the revenue of the country, i.e., as Ricardo explains on the same passage, the revenues of landlords and capitalists, whose wealth from the economic point of view forms the wealth of the nation, may at the same time render the population redundant and deteriorate the condition of the laborer. Ricardo, page 469. The constant aim and the tendency of every improvement in machinery is, in fact, to do away entirely with the labor of man, or to lessen its price by substituting the labor of women and children for that of grown-up men, or of unskilled for that of skilled workmen. Ure, 1st C, page 35. End note. Therefore, it is with the advent of machinery that the workman for the first time brutally revolts against the instruments of labor. The instrument of labor strikes down the laborer. This direct antagonism between the two comes out most strongly, whenever newly introduced machinery competes with handicrafts or manufactures, handed down from former times. But even in modern industry the continual improvement of machinery, and the development of the automatic system, has an analogous effect. The object of improved machinery is to diminish manual labor, to provide for the performance of a process, or the completion of a link in a manufacturer, by the aid of an iron instead of the human apparatus. Footnote. Report of the Inspector of Factory for the 31st October, 1858, page 43. End note. The adaptation of power to machinery heretofore moved by hand is almost of daily occurrence. The minor improvements in machinery having for their object economy of power, the production of better work, the turning off of more work in the same time, or in supplying the place of a child, a female, or a man, are constant, and although sometimes apparently of no great moment, have somewhat important results. Note. Report of the Inspector of Factories for 31st October, 1856. Page 15. End note. Whenever a process requires peculiar dexterity and steadiness of hand, it is withdrawn, as soon as possible, from the cunning workman, who is prone to irregularities of many kinds, and it is placed in charge of a peculiar mechanism, so self-regulating that a child can superintend it. Note. Ure, 1st C, page 19. The great advantage of the machinery employed in brick-making consists in this, that the employer is made entirely independent of skilled laborers. Employment Committee Report, London, 1856, page 130, note 46. Mr. A. Sturrock, superintendent of the machine department of the Great Northern Railway, says, with regard to the building of locomotives, etc., expensive English workmen are being less used every day. The production of the workshops of England is being increased by the use of improved tools, and these tools are again served by a low class of labor. Formerly, their skilled labor necessarily produced all the parts of engines. Now, the parts of engines are produced by labor with less skill, but with good tools. By tools, I mean engineers' machinery, lathes, planing machines, drills, and so on. Royal Committee on Railways, London, 1867. Minutes of Evidence, Note 17, 862 and 17863 end note on the automatic plan skilled labor gets progressively superseded note ure page 20 end note the effect of improvements in machinery not merely in superseding the necessity for the employment of the same quantity of adult labor as before in order to produce a given result but in substituting one description of human labor for another the less skilled for the more skilled juvenile for adult, 
female for male, causes a fresh disturbance in the rate of wages. Note. Ure, 1st C, page 321, end note. The effect of substituting the self-acting mule for the common mule is to discharge the greater part of the men's spinners, and to retain adolescents and children. Note. Ure, 1st C, page 23, end note. The extraordinary power of expansion of the factory system, owing to accumulated practical experience, to the mechanical means at hand, and to constant technical progress, was proved to us by the giant strides of that system under the pressure of a shortened working day. But who, in 1860, the zenith year of the English cotton industry, would have dreamt of the galloping improvements in machinery, and the corresponding displacement of working people, called into being during the following three years under the stimulus of the American Civil War. A couple of examples from the reports of the inspectors of factories will suffice in this point. A Manchester manufacturer states, We formerly had seventy-five carting engines. Now we have twelve doing the same quantity of work. We are doing with fewer hands by fourteen, at a savings in wages of ten pounds a week. Our estimated saving in waste is about ten percent in the quantity of cotton consumed. In another fine-spinning mill in Manchester, I was informed that through increased speed and the adoption of some self-acting processes, a reduction had been made in number of a fourth in one department and of above half in another, and that the introduction of the combing machine in place of the second carding had considerably reduced the number of hands formerly employed in the carding room. Another spinning mill is estimated to affect a saving of labor of ten percent. The Messrs. Gilmore, spinners at Manchester, state, In our blowing-room department we consider our expense with new machinery is fully one-third less in wages and hands. In the jack-frame and drawing-frame room, about one-third less in expense, and likewise one-third less in hands. In the spinning-room, about one-third less in expenses. But this is not all. When our yarn goes into the manufacturers, it is so much better by the application of our new machinery that they will produce a greater quantity of cloth, and cheaper than from the yarn produced by old machinery. Note. Reports of the Inspectors of Factories, 31st October, 1863, page 108-109. Mr. Redgrave further remarks in the same report, The reduction of hands against increased production is, in fact, constantly taking place. In woolen mills the reduction commenced some time since, and is continuing. A few days since, the master of a school in the neighborhood of Rochdale said to me that the great falling off in the girls' school is not only caused by the distress, but by the changes of machinery in the woolen mills, in consequence of which a reduction of seventy short-timers had taken place. Note. First see page 109. The rapid improvement of machinery during the crisis allowed the English manufacturers, immediately after the termination of the American Civil War, and almost in no time, to glut the markets of the world again. Cloth, during the last six months of 1866, was almost unsaleable. Thereupon began the consignment of goods to India and China, thus naturally making the glut more intense. At the beginning of 1867 the manufacturers resorted to their usual way out of the difficulty viz., reducing wages five per cent. The workpeople resisted, and said that the only remedy was to work short time, four days a week, and their theory was the correct one. After holding out for some time, the self-elected captains of industry had to make up their minds to short time, with reduced wages in some places, and in others without. End note. 
The following table shows the total result of the mechanical improvements in the English cotton industry due to the American Civil War. From 1857 to 1868, the number of factories in the United Kingdom increased by 350, the number of power looms increased by almost 80,000, and the number of spindles increased by about 4 million. The number of persons employed also increased by about 21,000 persons. Hence, between 1861 and 1868, 338 cotton factories disappeared. In other words, more productive machinery on a larger scale was concentrated in the hands of a smaller number of capitalists. The number of power looms decreased by 20,663, but since their product increased in the same period, an improved loom must have yielded more than an old one. Lastly, the number of spindles increased by 1,612,541, while the number of operatives decreased by 50,505. The temporary misery inflicted on the workpeople by the cotton crisis was heightened, and from being temporary made permanent, by the rapid and persistent progress of machinery. But machinery not only acts as a competitor who gets the better of the workman, and is constantly on the point of making him superfluous. It is also a power inimical to him, and as such capital proclaims it from the rooftops, and as such makes use of it. It is the most powerful weapon for repressing strikes, those periodical revolts of the working class against the autocracy of capital. Footnote. The relation of master and man in the blown flint bottle trades amounts to a chronic strike. Hence the impetus given to the manufacture of pressed glass, in which the chief operations are done by machinery. One firm in Newcastle, who formerly produced 350,000 pounds of blown flint glass, now produces in its place 3,500,000 pounds of pressed glass. Employment Commission, 4th Reprint, 1865, pages 262 to 263. End note. According to Gaskell, the steam engine was from the very first an antagonist of human power, an antagonist that enabled the capitalist to tread underfoot the growing claims of the workmen, who threatened the newly-born factory system with a crisis. Footnote. Gaskell, The Manufacturing Population of England, London, 1833, pages 3, 4. End note. It would be possible to write a history of the inventions, made since 1830, for the sole purpose of supplying capital with weapons against the revolts of the working class, at the head of these in importance stands the self-acting mule, because it opened up a new epoch in the automatic system. Footnote. W. Fairbaim discovered several very important applications of machinery to the construction of machines, in consequence of strikes in his own workshops. End note. Naismith, the inventor of the steam hammer, gives the following evidence before the Trades Union Commission, with regard to the improvements made by him in machinery and introduced in consequence of the widespread and long strikes of the engineers in 1851. The characteristic feature of our modern mechanical improvements is the introduction of self-acting tool machinery. What every mechanical workman now has to do, and what every boy can do, is not to work himself, but to superintend the beautiful labor of the machine. The whole class of workmen that depended exclusively on their skill is now done away with. Formerly, I employed four boys to every mechanic. Thanks to these new mechanical combinations, I have reduced the number of grown-up men from 1,500 to 750. 
The result was a considerable increase in my profits. Ure says of a machine used in calico printing, At length capitalists sought deliverance from this intolerable bondage, namely the, in their eyes, burdensome terms of their contracts with the workmen, in the resources of science, and were speedily reinstated in their legitimate rule, that of the head over the inferior members. Speaking of an invention for dressing warps, then the combined malcontents, who fancied themselves impregnably entrenched behind the old lines of division of labor, found their flanks turned and their defenses rendered useless by the new mechanical tactics, and were obliged to surrender at discretion. With regard to the invention of the self-acting mule, he says, a creation destined to restore order among the industrious classes, this invention confirms the great doctrine already propounded, that when capital enlists science into her service, the refractory hand of labor will always be taught docility. Note. Ure, Verst C, pages 368-370. Although Ure's work appeared thirty years ago, at a time when the factory system was comparatively but little developed, it still perfectly expresses the spirit of the factory, not only by its undisguised cynicism, but also by the naivete with which it blurts out the stupid contradictions of the capitalist brain. For instance, after propounding the doctrine stated above, that capital, with the aid of science taken into its pay, always reduces the refractory hand of labor to docility, he grows indignant, because it, physico-mechanical science, has been accused of lending itself to the rich capitalists as an instrument for harassing the poor. After preaching a long sermon to show how advantageous the rapid development of machinery is to the working classes, he warns them that by their obstinacy and their strikes they hasten that development. Violent revulsions of this nature, he says, display short-sighted man in the contemptible character of a self-tormentor. A few pages before he states the contrary. Had it not been for the violent collisions and interruptions resulting from erroneous views among the factory operatives, the factory system would have been developed still more rapidly and beneficially for all concerned. Then he exclaims again, Fortunately, for the state of society in the cotton districts of Great Britain, the improvements in machinery are gradual. It, improvement in machinery, is said to lower the rate of earnings of adults by displacing a portion of them, and thus rendering their number superabundant as compared with the demand for their labor. It certainly augments the demand for the labor of children, and increases the rate of their wages. On the other hand, this same dispenser of consolation defends the lowness of the children's wages, on the ground that it prevents parents from sending their children at too early an age into the factory. The whole of his book is a vindication of a working day of unrestricted length, that Parliament should forbid children of thirteen years to be exhausted by working twelve hours a day, reminds his liberal soul of the darkest days of the Middle Ages. This does not prevent him from calling upon the factory operatives to thank Providence, who, by means of machinery, has given them the leisure to think of their immortal interests. Footnote. Ure, 1st C, pages 368, 7, 370, 280, 281, 321, 370, 475. End note. End of Part 4, Chapter 15, Section 5